0: I haven't read for a long time, but um, these are great instructions. So, my husband and I spent last summer at my family's cabin in Grand Lakes, Colorado at the edge of the Rocky Mountain National Park. In town one day, I picked up a pamphlet on living in bear country and the suggestions of what to do if you meet a bear. Uh, It sounded just like meditation instructions. (laughs) Substituting thought for bear, here are some of the helpful hints from the Colorado Division of Wildlife. Colorado has been a home to thoughts since their earliest ancestors evolved in North America. (laughs) Today, increasing numbers of people routinely live and play in thought country. (laughs) Learning about thoughts and being aware of their habits will help you fully appreciate these unique animals and their habitat in which they live. What do you do if you meet a thought? (laughs) There are no definite rules about what to do if you meet a thought. Thought attacks are rare (laughs) compared to the number of close encounters. (laughs) However, if you do meet a thought before it has time to leave your area, here are some some suggestions. (laughs) Remember, every situation is different with respect to the thought, its activity, its terrain. And persons involved. Number one, stay calm. (laughs) If you see a thought and it hasn't seen you, (laughs) calmly leave the area. Two, stop, back away slowly while <laughs> facing the thought, <laughs> give the thought plenty of room to escape. This is very important instructions. Three, wild thoughts rarely attack people <laughs> unless they feel threatened or provoked. Four. Speak softly. This may reassure the thought that no harm is meant to it. Five, relax. If a thought stands upright and moves closer, it may be trying to detect your scent. (laughs) This isn't a sign of aggression. Once a thought identifies you, it may leave the area or try to intimidate you by charging to within a few feet before it withdraws. Number six, do don't run or make any sudden movements. Running is likely to prompt the thought to give chase. <laughs> and this is the cue. And you can't, out, you can't outrun a thought. <laughs> so I thought I would start with that just as a way to, uh, what? Uh, I don't know what, you know? <laughs> Uh, It may get kind of serious tonight, so uh, you you have to kind of loosen the form here. So uh, tonight, one of the things uh, I would like to kind of explore with you uh, is uh, what are really known as the three marks of existence and the subtle marks of existence. So um, in doing that, I would like to, I'm going to read one of my poems and then Uh, I would, really, the three marks are uh, anicca, which is impermanence, uh, dukkha, suffering, uh, and anatta, a no-self. So that's kind of what I'm going to play with, you know. But uh, just kind of following on Heather's talk right last night about um, compassion, that uh, one of the fundamental characteristics here uh, is uh, the truth. Uh, of suffering, you know. And uh, no matter we how we do it, we have to somehow come into relationship with it, and find our means of. Um, you know, uh, we find it here, and it has the possibility of uh, slowly kind of dissolving the sometimes the calluses that we have created uh, against ourselves and our hearts. So, we'll work with it. Poem. Medicine Pouch. Hesitantly standing between worlds. The gate is open, dear heart. What kind of medicine are you carrying in your pouch? Pilgrim, what is it? Turkey feathers, lizard's tails, a worm's body, a small brush of deer hair, a ray from the full moon, a tattered picture of Shangri-La. Is it enough, these few things, to stand by the high tide without being swept by the tsunami of your life? Buddha whispered from that deep place within Medicine pouch full. Medicine pouch full. You are enough. You are enough. These few things, these few things, enough. Opening your whole to these deep waters pulling you out into the world. Everything is held in this original ordinariness, a picture frame bigger than the cosmos. So it's true that, you know, uh, all compounded things, uh, all phenomena uh, in its nature is impermanent. And we know this as a kind of truth. You know, these are not uh, uh, anything outside of uh, simply uh, the truth of just noting the breath that we began to uh, not only just know it intellectually, but the practice here is actually our ability to begin to recognize uh, the truth uh, of uh, these marks of existence. Uh, All tainted... And stained states, all tainted and stained states are painful. All phenomena are empty and devoid of self. So these are kind of the three things I'd like to play with. And just going back to uh, Heather's talk last night, because, you know, it was pointing directly uh, at this uh, kind of second mark. And that all of us here, you know, we've had to somehow, um, you know, there is the part of recognizing it, but also allowing it. You know, it's not something that we um, say, oh, it's something... I want to simply uh, continuously kind of get out of or move away from. But what is going on here is our willingness to kind of, in in a sense, kind of encourage us to uh, look at that truth and uh, allow it to begin to inform us uh, in a way that uh, actually touches the, I think sometimes it's, uh, the heart is like there. these fish scales that kind of callousness that's kind of covered it and we come here and by our uh, willingness sometimes to just sit in the center uh, of uh, this cacophony of uh, memories and stories and contractions of the body and uh, how in a sense we either uh, try to push it away or uh, we grasp a hold of it and uh, somehow try to make more out of it, you know. Uh, Just from Rumi, the wonders of Rumi. The wound is the place where the light enters you. The wound is the place where the light enters you. So, uh, there's so much of this, you know, I know for uh, my first years of practice, uh, you know, being a guy, a white guy, and a very privileged kind of guy, uh, but living in India uh, in the 60s and early 70s, uh, one of the things was that uh, I had no idea in my early 20s how much I had suffered in my life. You know, because basically uh, I had created uh, all kinds of denials to somehow uh, not feel it uh, and not know it, you know. But coming to this practice, one of the identifying truths, you know, is that somehow how we've kind of built up uh, these projections and, and these protections Uh, that they have to, those walls and those uh, kind of protections uh, have to come down. And it has a direct effect, you know, direct effect on the fact that, you know, we didn't somehow uh, outthink this. Uh, Maybe we came from the wrong life, you know, But the truth is, it's our life, you know, and that this willingness to acknowledge uh, the complexity of the past. This is from, it's actually letters from uh, William Burroughs to Allen Ginsberg. Whether you like it or not, You are committed to the human endeavor. I cannot ally myself with such a purely negative goals as avoidance of suffering. Mm -hmm. Suffering is a chance you take by the fact of being alive. I like that. This is uh, another one. This is from Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. Suffering has been stronger than all our other teachings and has taught me to understand what your heart used to be. I have been bent and broken, but I hope into better shape. And I see here there is a piece of this uh, going on. There is an ancient tribal proverb I once heard in India. It says that before you can see properly, you, uh, you must first shed your tears to clear the way. You no, know? So it's okay, you know. Uh, this is just simply acknowledging this uh, universal truth of our willingness to kind of, oh, oh let me feel this. And it's not to get lost in it or uh, to somehow deny it. It really is kind of a middle way here of dealing with it. This is, uh, this is something on impermanence because I think, you know, these two particularly of uh, impermanence and suffering are uh, actually these marks are something that are the they are I, I see them as the fundamental teachers here, you know. And uh, we come in with an idea of what uh, impermanence is. But I think in my youth, when I was uh, first doing these practices, you know, one of the things was I understood that, but I didn't actually understand what it was like to actually uh, know it from the inside. What is insight practice? It's actually our willingness to kind of feel uh, the truth of, of, of what's happening, you know. For nothing is fixed forever and forever and forever. It is not fixed. The earth is always shifting. The light is always changing. The sea does not cease to grind down the rock. Generations do not cease to be born. And we are responsible to them because we are the only witnesses they have. Because we are the only witnesses they have. I was thinking earlier of um, this last summer uh, uh, kind of in the Himalayas, going back to uh, in the early 70s, I uh, lived in a little house in the summers. And uh, I, I did actually, it was great because I would do 10 days of retreat every month. And I just lived there actually several years and it was uh, up a river. Uh, And now what's there is uh, very different than what it was, you know, but uh, It was uh, my solace the place where I could go and actually give myself permission uh, To uh, first just to drop the world You know and the other was amazing thing was uh, it was by a river so there was this sense of oh, you know somehow uh, there was something being taught to me. And uh, if any of you have read uh, uh, Herman Hesse's the Siddhartha, at the end of that, he talks about sitting by the river and hearing the voices, you know. Uh, and for me, it was the voices of all, all the stories in the past and what I believed about my family and my system and my schools. And all of it just moving, you know. And eventually one of the uh, wonders for me was finally uh, at some point uh, I went up into uh, maybe two, two and a half hours from there. And I found an old herder's cave, you know, and what was so fantastic in Tibetans, they call poop practice. It's uh, cave practice. And I went up there and um, I would sit and one of the wonders of this was uh, it was a marvelous uh, cave overlooking the Himalayas, you know. And um, it was more like an outcropping. There wasn't a lot back in the cave itself. And there was sort of, you could see that herders had come and there was lots of smoke on the ceilings of it. But it also uh, was the vision that somehow, uh, for me, uh, the healing. Uh, that I needed was simply based on nature, you know, and I think sometimes yes, there's the nature of that we come here to kind of study and feel ourselves. What's in there? What's going on under this, you know? And I needed somehow the reflection of the outer, you know. And I think what the wonders here at Spirit Rock is that we have. Uh, especially this year, uh, the incredible, incredible beauty of these hills. And that somehow, oh yes, there's this hall and what, uh, in a sense, uh, this is sitting uh, kind of in your own stew. And studying uh, your inner nature of how you happen. And that we began to have, of course, insights into these marks of existence. The fundamentals of... of, um, You know, I thought, when I was young, I thought, oh, I will know this somehow. Um, And I began to realize that, oh, one of the truths was it wasn't about the language. It wasn't about what I was thinking or making up that actually what this practice was all about was something underneath it, something that was uh, instinctual in the contact itself, the knowing of it. And our ability to familiarize ourselves uh, with truthfully uh, impermanence as a mental factor, of knowing it, and the experiential truth of, oh, this... This is how it is. And that every time we sit here and we have simply uh, the workings of the breath as a primer to looking at these marks of existence. Uh, The breath rises and it passes away. It rises and passes away. As we begin to notice not only the breath, But the thoughts, the feelings, uh, these uh, truths, you know, that we begin to recognize is, oh, there's more here. There's a lot more here. That's not about the words. Uh, It is really about our truth of sensing and feeling. whatever arises, passes. Whenever I grasp it and I try to somehow manipulate it, or do something with it, that there are simple consequences. And so, we train ourselves over and over in seeing that what we're actually experiencing Uh, Is not something that uh, is a fixed truth. It's simply uh, this capacity to keep riding on this truth of things changing. I like to think of it sometimes, uh, imagine it, you know, uh, as this pond. And there is this pond that has uh, a stream that comes into it and a stream that goes out of it. And that there is a a, a small um, little bay off to the side, and that bay uh, is very much like Spirit Rock. And we come here to get out of the stream of that flow, not that it's, a, but the truth is it's stirring up this muck all the time. And our capacity here is first to come and simply uh, kind of rest in that little bay, uh, which is actually, you gave yourself the gift to come here. And then, what happens? You know, there are all these particles that are uh, constantly uh, kind of churning and out towards the moving of the stream that comes in and goes out, there's a lot, but here in space, there's, it is minimized, and as it's minimized, oh, one of the truths here is we begin to watch the particles slowly begin to settle, and to settle means, oh, I actually know what's going on, you know, I can see this, you know, and I understand that uh, in the stories themselves, in the memories. Uh, there is uh, all sorts of, uh, sort of, maybe a good word would be these jam logs that have to somehow come up to the surface. And they will kind of cause the waters to, to um, and I hope you don't get them, but they happen, you know, as you settle in. They kind of dislodge, and they kind of stir up the waters and we really look at that as part of the process here of kind of the undoing or the purification process of of uh, being in this little alcove, this little bay, you know? but the par- particles begin to settle, and the thing is that more they settle we begin to see more into to the the surface is very much about um, the busyness of uh, our our personality stuff. You know, and it was interesting because the Buddha was not so interested in that. You know, he was actually interested in that there was truths of the commonality, something that was uh, the universal truths and principles. You know, and it was really in this, uh, you know, the... Uh, recognition uh, in the satipatthana uh, of uh, this uh, kind of the sati of the dharmas, you know, of the, of the universal truths. And he just simply said the Four Noble Truths, the, uh, the hindrances and the three characteristics and the six senses uh, and the seven factors. All, the, all these were all about universal principles. And so our job in some ways is we're trying to uh, those logs that kind of come up the surface and kind of move everything around. Uh, They are finite, by the way. This is not something that um, uh, when they come up to the surface, actually why they consider this uh, kind of a purification process. Oh, they come up and uh, those logs kind of move in and go downstream. Out into the movement itself. No. It's interesting because uh, it's always kind of questioned me: how how do you move into uh, if you really understand these uh, simplistic but profound and deep principles? then uh, there is uh, the third of these, the anatta. (coughs) And it simply translates as no self. And it was always curious to me that, um, you know, one of the suttas that kind of always caught me was uh, there was uh, a seeker uh, who came to the Buddha and he was very much like Ba'i of the Bark Cloth that uh, Heather uh, read about last night. You know. And he came to the Buddha and he said, you know, um, is there a self? You know. And he had been a yogi for years and a, a great kind of mendicant. You know. And the Buddha wouldn't answer him, you know. And he eventually walked and left, you know. And Ananda, his cousin, then asked him, he said, you know, you know oh, why didn't you answer him? And he said, oh, I really couldn't. Because uh, if I said there was a self, you know, then he would fall into eternalism, that somehow it was bigger than it was. You know And if I said there wasn't a self, then it would fall over into annihilism, an annihilation kind of thing. And so this is why the complexity of this is, is the Buddha wouldn't answer that question. And yet we have to start, in a sense, if these are natural truths and things we can actually see, and know for ourselves, then uh, anatta is something in the process of investigation, in the kind of deeping, once the particles kind of settle and we start seeing into these principles, then we begin to see, oh, then oh, there is this truth uh, that uh, there is not a fixed thing, you know, that actually the all of it is actually moving and churning and changing. And that the self was a relative reality and as a universal truth. But also, you know, we have to look at it as uh, actually, in a sense, uh, there's two sides of it. And one of them is, on the surface, uh, there is the relative truth. And that Uh, You can't say you don't exist. You get that. It's a relative truth. And so you can actually begin to uh, recognize uh, all the kind of pain and suffering that happens around the relative truth and its history, you know, and its neurosis. But what's also true is to actually uh, that's, in a sense, more surface material, so that's the kind of relative reality. But the Buddha was looking at, oh, I'm not going to just look at the surface material, I want to look deep down into how, at the, kind of deep into this pond, of seeing really clearly how it is, and I see that there isn't a fixed thing at all. It is simply that, just like the impermanence, that it is something that arises due to causes and conditions. And I begin to make this incredible, uh, in a sense, kind of discovery that I can actually let go of all of it, which actually affects the personal, you know. And a lot of what we're doing here is, in a, a sense, kind of uh, in, in the sense of getting deeper into what's here, is that we begin to actually let go uh, of a lot of the relative part, you know, and have insight into the deeper part of uh, that uh, non-self, you know. Or you could say just uh, uh, how a self arises. Okay, I get the play. You know, and I want to go back to uh, last night, Heather read... uh, the bark cloth, you know, and it is such a profound uh, uh, contact between the Buddha and a seeker, you know, and in in such simple words, and I'll try to just untangle it a little bit for you. I'll just read it again. In the seeing, there is only the seeing. In the heart, in hard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognize. Thus you should see that indeed there is no thing here. This baiya is how you should train yourself. Since baiya, there is for you in the scene only the seen. In the heard, only the heard. In the sensed, only the sensed. In the cognized, only the cognized. And you see that there is no thing here. You will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there, neither here nor there. As you see there is no thing there, you will see that there, that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that, for so the relative and the absolute, nor in a place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. So, in the six senses, I like to just kind of describe what he's kind of pointing at, and working with. So, uh, they're essentially, first of all, uh, there is uh, the outer objects, right? Our outer world. And we get enthralled and entranced by the outer world. Uh, there, So that's one thing. And they are all in contact with one of our sense doors. So uh, there is the eye. Uh, there is the that that smells, the nose, the taste buds, uh, the hearing, uh, the feeling, and the cognizing. Those are the six. And then there is uh, the consciousness. And so there is a knowing that arises. And so that knowing, first of all, uh, so it's really three in any one of those six senses, there is only three things happening. Know, the knowing of it, that that the door and the objects outside, you know. and the idea here is that we begin to, uh, in a sense, uh, recognize or release first of all the objects out there, and then I, I like one of the things I'm very visual, and one of the powerful things for me was actually in the walking practice realizing that somehow the objects, you know that I would get caught you know, watching somebody, I look at a tree, you know, That and I was actually caught in the objects, not in the awareness of where I was experiencing the objects. You know, one of my teachers, the 16th Karmapa, had an eye that was a little funny, and so the Tibetans used to say, well, he had one eye that looked out and one eye that looked in, you know? And I used to think, oh, well, now that is so profound, because... For me, when I looked out, I got lost in the object. And then I started to realize, oh, where do I experience? Oh, I experience it actually at the eye door. You know? And that there, th- there is there with the knowing of it, the yoga, there's there with the knowing of it. You know? Uh, and the consciousness uh, of each of those sense doors, and whether it's the cognizing of uh, the thinking, uh, Or the objects of the eye, or the objects of sound, and that in this process we begin releasing. You know, we go from the object uh, to the sense door uh, to the knowing of it. But eventually, we have to actually uh, start relaxing, and relaxing is you're going to relax the objects. You know, you're going to soften. You're going to soften that place that actually where the sense doors, the cognizing, or where the seeing, or the hearing, or the tasting, or smelling, or body sensing, that you actually begin to soften that. And the way you learn that, ouch, you know, is actually through, through the kind of grasping and letting go, the grasping and letting go, you know. But instinctually, you begin to see: oh, there is a possibility of releasing and relaxing, uh, and finding that somehow uh, we can simplify all this. Uh, there's a wonderful. Uh, this is from the Venerable Ajahn Chah, and um, well, he talks. This is really a simple way of kind of uh, working with the practices from those marks of existence. I could say, we have reached this point. Having reached this point, you know something about the path. But you must also be able to contemplate sense objects. Turn your tranquil mind towards sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touch, thoughts, mental objects, mental factors. Whatever arises, investigate. Notice whether you like it or not whether it pleases or displeases you. But do not get involved with this. This liking and disliking are just reactions to the world of appearances. You must see at a deeper level. Then, whether something initially seems good or bad, you will see that it is only impermanent, unsatisfactory, and empty. File everything that arises into these three categories. Wherever it is, good or bad, evil, wonderful, whatever it is, put it in one of these categories. This is the way of vipassana, by which all things are calmed. Before long, knowledge and insight into impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and emptiness will arise. This is the beginning of true wisdom the heart of meditation, which leads to liberation. Follow your experience. See it. Strive continuously. Know the truth. Learn to give up. To get rid of. To attain peace. Simple method, isn't it? You know, and once we really understand that, oh, here are the external objects, here is the, uh, the sense stores and the knowing of them, you know. And we really begin from that uh, in a sense, oh, I can let go of this and I can know it as uh, one of these experiences. If you go, there's another level to this. And I know this is, um, you know, this gets a little esoteric, but they're also what are known as the subtle characteristics. And I personally uh, love them in a sense that they point directly at what's even underneath that, what's deeper. And they're simply, uh, they are in correlation with the three characteristics. And one, uh, there's, uh, of course, what we just talked about is anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And this is sunyata, tatat, and atamayata, you know. And uh, they, are in the, they are kind of esoteric, but in the texts uh, in several places. And uh, sunyata, you know, Ajahn Chah, when he said, oh, instead of self, he just said empty. You know, Uh, that it's somehow uh, empty of uh, really any inherent existence. You know? And we begin to actually look at the fact that uh, when we break all this down into the smallest parts, it's no longer something. You know? And that there is uh, a sense of, um, you know, it is in the sense of uh, they use the word emptiness, which is actually uh, cogniz cognizing empty. So there's the knowing of the empty, which is really what emptiness is. It's knowing of it. There's a wonderful <clears throat> kind of piece here that uh, this is from a question that um, uh, Andrew Harvey. Uh, it's in a journey to Ladakh and um, with the Rinpoche there. But what remains when everything falls away? What remains when everything falls away? Nothing. Emptiness. Sunyata. There is no real self. There is no final identity. No God, no soul, no absolute. Only Sunyata. There are two ways of saying sunyata, the Rinpoche said. You can say it harshly, and you can say it gently. You can say it so that it sounds like the iron hand of death beating on the door, or like waves fanning out and whispering on the seashore. When you say it, in the first way, you tremble slightly because you understand that you know emptiness is the end of the ego you have cherished and you are afraid. When you say it gently, you are happy because in the experience of emptiness is spaciousness. And freedom is nirvana to be freed of a false perception of the self is the end of buddhism to realize that there is nothing and no one is also the understand is to understand the one is in everything and in everyone that there is no death no fear no pain no separation and then andrew harvey goes on have you felt what you're talking about in moments. Enough to know that it is not nonsense. Mm-hmm. Enough to live in constant awareness of its truth. You know. So, all of this can be broken down. You know, we see in kind of molecular science or physics or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, what is it that's going on here? in the kind of deepest level. And uh, is it all, uh, you know, there are kind of two sides to this. One of them is, uh, you can take it down to nothing. No thing. But also in that no thing, uh, there's another truth. Is that uh, there is nothing separate. So, uh, yes, it's true. None of it, uh, exists from that kind of precise, ultimate point of view. And at the same time, uh, you can't take anything away from what's right here. So, in a way, uh, that uh, emptiness and interconnectedness exist simultaneously, together. You know, A bit paradoxical, but... Uh, we have to be able to hold both of these things, you know, because the emptiness is the power, is the fundamental power to let go of all of it. It has no, you know, intrinsic selfness. It has no intrinsic selfness. And yet, there's no way that uh, I can't pick up a molecule and run out of the room and get rid of it. It's actually, this is all connected, you know. And that the illusion or delusion of this was that somehow uh, that, the, that what's on the surface of that pond, that separate self, you no. Know, that as it moves and looks clearer and clearer, it dissolves, you know. And yet, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. You know and so Buddhism is a paradoxical this way, but we can kind of sit with this truth you know and see that and a lot of times I think the word empty in uh, in the kind of Western vernacular uh, is kind of tricky because in essence, from our view it means uh, you know it's actually saying no you know it is uh, It's you know it's empty of any inherent existence oh, and so we kind of say no. But in the complementary piece of this, uh, there is another word that is part of the kind of these subtle characteristics, and the word is tatat, and it simply is referring to it. The translation is suchness or isness, and so empty in some way it sort of has can be held as a negative. No, no, I'm not going to get involved because I know it's not anything that's empty of any uh, kind of truth or inherent existence. Tatat, on the other hand, is suchness. It means, oh yes, everything is exactly the way it is. You know, and I can say yes to all of this because there was no separateness. That was the delusion that I had created. And so we actually can sit with these two pieces, you know. One of them saying, oh, I have the power because I know it's not, it's empty of inherent existence. So I know that power is my power to let go. I have that ability to let go. And it is a a fundamental truth and power that you learn here. You have to learn this. You know. And... But on the other side of it, when you learn that, then there is the truth of here, of the suchness, the paradox of that, and that somehow in that paradox, um, oh, I'm here, you're here, we're here, we're all together. It's all. It's. It's. I can't change uh, the thing as it is right now. It is. This is it. You know. And that I say yes. And it also, I think, you know, when Heather was talking about compassion, when you're saying, when you know that the fundamentals are the power to let go and not get caught up in any of it or any of the concepts and the, the views of it, you also have this incredible thing of, oh, if there's no self and there's no separateness, then you are me and I am you, you know, and we're all together in this. And there is some way that um, when I recognize that, then this thing compassion. Because one, the emptiness is more about the wisdom factor. It's like the power to let go. The other one is, oh, no separateness here. You know. And if I can fundamentally learn actually that if I have learned that power of letting go and I see that I am just here in this time and space and body, then, uh, oh, can I care? First and primary, I am reflection of you. You are a reflection of me. So if I love myself, and I learn, you know, we have, it's so difficult in a culture that, you know, with such strong, you know, identity and such harsh critic, these inner critic and, and kind of judge of somehow uh, I'm not good enough. And in my poem, I said, oh, I'm enough. And somehow, so in that suchness, in that truth, I can start saying, oh, I am enough. And if I'm enough, then this is all going to be just fine. You know? And uh, so I love myself, and I get over myself, and I start seeing, actually seeing the world. You know? And I see it in its impermanence, I see it in its suffering, and see it in its selflessness. So. You know, ultimately, this is saying, uh, when you kind of get these pieces, that there's also uh, the third kind of piece here is a word called Atamayata. You know, And I actually like their series of translations, but, um, you know, unconcocting. Uh, but I like not there with the object, okay? And and in the sense that all objects, if there's an object in the knowing of it, there's a duality there. And so Atamayata is saying, oh, you know, uh, even the duality... Where there's duality, there's complexity and suffering. Oh, there's also moments. There is moments. And you have had these moments, you know, where actually nothing is happening, you know. Uh, You're not caught in liking or disliking, and there's kind of the knowing of it. And uh, it's not something fancy. It's actually the most ordinary thing, you know. But its foundation... Is that it has a sense of peace, you know, and you could call it, you know, you could call it just momentary nirvana. That's good, you know, it's fine to have that, and it exists. And that uh, we begin to say, oh, I've kind of seen the workings of all this, and I'm choosing. Uh, I'm actually choosing, uh, not the this and that, but actually. Uh, I'm not choosing, and that there is a sense of, um, you know, peace and ease uh, that inherently exists, uh, and that we become more, here we bec- we're actually become more and more familiar with that peace and ease. So, what to do? You know, you got yourself into this. (laughs) You know, so, you know what to do. Medicine pouch. Hesitantly standing between the worlds, The gate is open, dear heart. What kind of medicine are you carrying in your pouch? Pilgrim? Turkey feathers, lizard's tails, a worm's body, a small brush of deer hair, a ray from the full moon, a tattered picture, a tattered picture of Shangri-La, Is it enough these few things to stand by the high tide without being swept by the tsunami of your life? Buddha whispered from that deep down place within, Medicine pouch full, medicine pouch full. You are enough. You are enough. These few things enough, opening your heart to this deep water, pulling you out into the world. Everything held in its original ordinariness, a picture frame bigger than the cosmos. So oh, let's just sit for a moment. May the particles in your waters, may they settle so you may see beyond the personal into these universals that the Buddha was so emphatic pointing at.